Welcome to Equinox, where Rob and I are striking the balance between the light and the dark. This is episode 41. My name is Joseph Darnell, and I'm joined by our friend, the doctor, Robert Carter. Hello, Rob. Hello, Joe. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing just well, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to this topic, and I'm happy that we're starting, well, 2021 recording. Is this like season two yet? Or do we have to wait till we actually hit the one-year mark before we call it season two? I We could call it season four because we've been around for four seasons. Oh. We could say that every episode is a new season. So this is episode 41. This is the 41st season. Yeah, yeah. But, but, but. However you want to go with it. Can we call it season two? Yeah. Woohoo! We're in season two of Equinox! Yes! We made it! <laughs> we've been renewed! We renewed ourselves, which is the best way to renew any good show. I'm very excited to continue. You know, our anniversary is coming up, and I do like to celebrate anniversaries. I think we should get a, a purple cake with the Equinox symbol on it and split that. Oh, that'd yeah. be cool, man. Yeah. So when is our anniversary? When did we publish our first I think it was episode? February 11th. We're so close to our one-year anniversary. I think we can call it season two and still get away with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. It was February 19th. We're celebrating a little early, you know? It's but it, but it's good. We should do this. Yeah, but just putting 2020 behind us is such a refreshing thing. So, and it's not easy to start a new podcast in 2020 and then reach episode 40. We're doing something right. I I do believe that the the spirits have shown us some favor when it comes to our podcast. Nothing else in the year 2020, but at least our podcast. Speaking of our show, did you know that Netflix has stolen our idea. Yes. So they got their own television show now. They did. Equinox on Netflix. You know, good on them for recognizing a good title when they hear it. That's right. Hey, did you watch it? I did. I caught the pilot. You? Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah? I tried. I watched <laughs> three quarters of the first episode, and I was just like, this is boring. And so I just turned it off, and I was very disappointed in Netflix for taking our wonderful name and making it kind of boring. <laughs> Did you like it? Well, I thought it was, I thought it was intriguing, very mysterious, kind of creepy. Uh, so a plot summary I found was uh, on IMDb. The character Astrid was traumatized by the mysterious disappearance of a school class in 1999, and 20 years later, when she finds out that the only survivor from 1999 mysteriously died, Astrid sets off to discover what really happened. In bum, episode bum, one, bum. it's a lot about that trauma, her missing sister, and uh, some kind of psychological disturbance. And not really any answers for a whole hour. <laughs> but uh, intriguing idea. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to watch episode two or anything. Just thought it was funny that that show popped up. And, you know, I really love our name. I know there's a few other people who've used it as a, as a title, but I, I have to say, I think it is most appropriate to our show. I think so too. I think we picked a good name. But the coolest thing about Netflix's show is that it's not in English, it's in Danish. Yeah. That's just, yeah. That's just neat saying, hey, that's Danish and that's in Denmark. And, you know, I, I like international things. I watch a lot of international sorts of um, things. I, I prefer them when they're subtitled and not dubbed. Oh, really? I prefer them when they're dubbed, not subtitled. Uh, depends on the voice actor. Some of them are just terrible. In fact, some of the, the, the voices I recognize, oh, that person with the voice of this other person, this other show, yeah. <laughs> it's just never, it's never the same. They can never quite pull it off. Some, some are better than others, but I really do prefer hmm. subtitles. Well, interesting. I, I, I appreciate subtitles and dubbing. It is a special art. It's very hard. 
because all these languages have different numbers of syllables to say the same things. So if you're going to be a good voice artist, it can be really tricky. They got their work cut out for them. When we were kids, we would get the the special edition of a DVD and it'd be usually a Pixar movie and we would accidentally switch it to French and then we would just die laughing for you know <laughs> watching it for 30 minutes in French because well, like, everything's like when I over. when I heard myself speaking Spanish on the Evolution's Achilles Heels DVD. I was like, dude, that sound good. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so what else is new? You're learning cool stuff lately? Yeah, well one thing that you happened across which caught both of our attention very weird. Something that we've talked about before is the speed of the Earth spin. Oh, that's right. I did general that and all of their various spins. This was a new one. The Earth has been spinning faster, yeah. reported by fizz.org. And they said that several decades ago, the development of atomic clocks began allowing scientists to record the passage of time in incredibly small increments, in turn, allowing for measuring the length of any given day down to a millisecond. And that was led by the discovery that the spin of the planet is actually far more va- variable than once thought. Who would have thunk it? Yeah. So since such measurements began, scientists have also found that the Earth was slowly slowing its spin very gradually, compensating for the insertion of a leap second now and then. Yes. Until this past year when it began spinning faster. What? <laughs> so much so that in the field, they have begun to wonder if it is a negative leap, uh, like a, a negative second might be needed this year, an unprecedented disaster. suggestion. That would be a disaster. So this is just happening because of space, natural, astro- astro- astronomical causes? I don't know. And the article didn't quite say any specific reasons why. They just are measuring it. And it was what they say. They said 1.4602 milliseconds shorter than the standard day. Interesting. It doesn't sound like much. No. Except, but it, if, well, but see, we ignored the little problems hundreds of years ago when they set up the calendar. And by the time the Middle Ages came around, there were days off. They said, we got to fix this. So they set up a new calendar and that worked for a while until we had to adjust the leap year system to, to keep it all like, you know, it's like every four years except years that end in zero, zero. And something about the year 2000 wasn't a leap year either. And blah, 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 blah. And had all these little, you know, do the leap year here, but not here and not over there. And that way we can keep the stars lined up properly. And it's, it's tricky. But now that we're getting so specific, I mean, hmm. you can't, we, we need to know the exact time to incredibly precise number. I mean, GPS doesn't work. Banking transactions don't work. The stock market would collapse. <laughs> we need to know the time, but they can't add a negative leap second. That's like a Y2K problem. Oh, that is so weird. There's no computer system in the world that's that's ready to do a, a negative leap second. Interesting. Adding a second, that's no problem because you just skip over one. But if you subtract one, that means you have the same second twice. How do you time transactions? This is a very peculiar conundrum. I would have never thought that this was an innovation we needed to be able to set our clocks back. <laughs> I never would have thought it either. I would have never even realized we needed leap seconds until they started talking about them. Are we tracking the speed of the rotation of other solar system planets? Do we know the down to the milliseconds what Venus is doing, what Mars is doing? Yes and no. Okay, because I was wondering if we would know. Well, I think Venus has slowed from the earlier measurements but I'm not sure the earlier measurements were specifically as accurate as the more modern ones. That makes sense. But they are saying it has slowed. It's a giant mystery. Why would Venus slow? And they said, oh, because the atmosphere is so thick. 
it produces a lot of drag on the planet. It's actually slowing the planet down. Yeah. yeah. Cool idea. Now, speaking of long, gradual times, there was another story. And it, it, we see these stories on a regular basis about some artifact or cave drawing that is really old and it has been recently dated. And we deal with this a lot with the ministry that Rob and I work at. I'm not a scientist. The scientists do. I just happen to be a video producer that helps them get their message out. So the story is that according to a study published uh, this week, archaeologists have determined that they recently discovered a cave painting of a pig, and it's at least 45,500 years old. And the New York Times reported In a hidden valley on an Indonesian island, there is a cave decorated with what may be the oldest figurative art ever glimpsed by modern eyes. The vivid depiction of a wild pig, outlined and filled with mulberry-hued pigment, dates back to at least 45,500 years. Cool. So, um, Rob, we haven't really talked about carbon dating and other dating methods. We don't have time for that as a main subject, but I wondered if you could give us a comment about this because this is the sort of thing where this falls into historical sciences, right? And is that how they're determining? Absolutely, yes. But they're using operational science. They're taking measurements of something and then using that to extrapolate backwards. Yeah. So it's not like they, they have definitive evidence. So, so when you look at this cave drawing, I, I just got to say, it looks like a wiener dog version of a pig and with the head of a wolf. Mm, it's a little yeah. fatter than a wiener a dog. A beefy one. But yeah, it's not, it's not, a, um, it's not a Rembrandt. No. <laughs> well, we'll forgive the artist. But it is a curious thing. How would you know how old something like this really is? Yeah. I don't know what technique that they used for this particular thing. And that's, that's one of the difficulties. But dating cave artifacts like that is notoriously speculative. And dates will flip around depending on who's doing the measuring and what technique they're using. Are they using uranium trapped in the calcium carbonate that's been deposited on the wall? I doubt they're using carbon-14. Um, there's, there's all sorts of different types of measurements, and it's, it's really difficult. I mean, you think a cave is not, you know, there's water dripping in it and things like that. Therefore, it's not sealed off from the environment. Yeah, no. Yeah, so I don't know what I don't know exactly what they're doing. I just read a paper today, even though it was from last last summer, about um, a, a cave in Mexico at a high altitude in Mexico. It's overlapping a, uh, overlooking a beautiful valley, and they realize that there's human remains oh. in this cave, but the remains are twice as old as the earliest claimed human remains in the Americas. What? Huh? I mean, and and this is important because in the genetics world. The age of the Y chromosome, they have pegged it to the peopling of the Americas. In fact, that the, the main people in, in the Y chromosome world, the, the people who put together all the Y chromosomes for the Thousand Genomes Project, in their paper, they said the peopling of the Americas is a sanity check <laughs> for dating the Y chromosome. And all of a sudden, their sanity check just doubled in age. Now, that doesn't mean that these older people left any Y chromosomes behind, but you can't necessarily know that. And all of a sudden, there's lots of speculation going on, and, and, and the whole dating scheme is up in the air again. <laughs> and so uh, I'm not sure how they dated these, these remains, but I'm extremely skeptical about specifically cave-related radiometric dating. That one in particular, I think, is the most debatable out of all the other radiometric dating techniques. Because it's not like 
you know, a volcano goes off and leaves a rock behind. That's not how caves work. Caves accrue over time. They change over time. Mm. Things dissolve. Things uh, get precipitated out and, and left behind. And it's, it's, it's just a big mess. It is worth noting that the, the drawing of the pig resembles the species of pig, the warty pig, which is still living today in the island of Sulawesi, where the cave is. So a 45,500-year-old pig looks like a modern pig. Cool. Even it's a little bit more like a wiener dog, but that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it got me to thinking, it is laughable that the archaeo- the archaeologist's approach to this cave art is that we can basically know it is somewhere in the ballpark of 45,500 years when we are looking at historical artifacts that describe events in world history that are more sketchy about what century or even millennia they belong to in the last 8,000 years. We can have a historical find and say, yeah, this this like describes events and people and places, their gods, their cultures, their travels, and we're really not positive. It could have happened 4,000 years ago, but we might be totally off about that. And it may be closer to like 5,000 or 6,000 years ago. But here, we look at a cave drawing of a pig and put it down as 45,500 years ago. Yeah, that's tough. <laughs> this, this is not very scientific. I don't think so. <laughs> hey, something else I, I, I saw this week that was really cool. Yeah. There's this thing in, in archaeology called a dire wolf. And they're, you know, Dungeon Dragons, I think Game of Thrones, talked about dire wolves. Oh, yeah. We watch Game of Thrones. But no. there's this thing called a dire wolf that if you go to um, the Liberia Tar Pits in Los Angeles, just right near the Hollywood sign, they have all these wolves that they pulled out of the tar, and they're big wolves. Well, they thought up until just like last week when this paper came out, they thought that a dire wolf would be related to a wolf wolf because they look the same. Their bones are very similar. They're more similar to each other than wolves are to dogs. Well, and when you say that it would be related to a wolf, then you mean that it would be related to like the ancestor of all dog species. Well, what, what they thought was that it would be more similar, that it had a, it basically is a giant wolf is what it is. But now they're saying this thing needs to be on its own genus. Really? Yeah. It's not canis. Wolves, dogs, coyotes. I don't know about coyotes. Wolves and dogs. It actually has, it needs its own genus. It's that much different genetically. What makes it so different? Dogs and wolves are more closely related than dire wolves are to dogs and wolves. Huh. And boom, what on earth? Brand new stuff. Now, I can't get the paper because it's nature and nature is behind a paywall. Uh. But I, I have read the abstract and a popular level summary of it. And it's just, it's just really cool. I love genetics like that when it throws new stuff at us that we didn't expect. Interesting. Okay. Man, now you got me wondering about what this creature would be like, whether wild or potentially domesticated. And oh, a big, a big, dog-like wolf-like are we talking like the size of like a grizzly bear a brown bear or is it not that not that big uh no we're talking something eight to ten feet long the big ones that's so neat that that's a big old dog (laughs) love it but speaking about big things and the things that are not so big uh the universe just got a little bit smaller you found this other interesting story that about one tenth of the amount of galaxies are around than what scientists thought yeah. <laughs> so new new measurements of okay so what we we're saying is there's just 
one-tenth of the number of galaxies in the universe as we previously thought there was. So, In other words, yeah. 90% less galaxies. Yes. 90% of the universe just disappeared with one measurement. What? Yep, sure enough, it's gone. Yeah. The article's at SciTech Daily, and they said... New measurements of that weak background glow show that the unseen galaxies are less plentiful than some theoretical studies suggested, numbering only in the hundreds of billions rather than the previously reported two trillion galaxies. Yeah, so if you go from two trillion to 200 million or 200 billion, that's one-tenth. That's 90% reduction. Now, here's how they did this. This is really cool. You can't count galaxies because a lot of galaxies you can't see. They're too small, they're too dim, they're hiding you know, behind other galaxies and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at the glow of the dark areas of the galaxy, of the universe. So what's in between the stars, what's in between the galaxies is light that's just bouncing around randomly in the heavens. But the thing is they needed to get far away from the sun. And so you remember the, um, the New Horizons probe that took all those amazing pictures of Pluto? Yeah, beautiful. Well, it's still out there and is further away than it was. And so they started pointing it at the dark areas of the, of, the, of the visible universe. And they realized it's a lot darker than they expected. Oh. And so they did lots of fancy, you know, back of the envelope calculations. And they said, oh, that's because there's a lot less galaxies than we thought. Kabam. <laughs> I just love stuff like that. I just, the coolest, weirdest, I can't believe that's true. And yet, how could it not be? There's just... Not as much mass in the universe as anyone realized. Now, what does that mean for Big Bang and, and space expansion and dark energy? I have no idea. I have no clue. But things like that do tend to trickle down and start challenging other things. So if this holds, I would expect that the story of the universe is going to change a lot. I don't know how, but if, if some you know Big Bang... Uh, theorists that has to wrestle with this, they're going to have to change their numbers. They're going to have to change their timing, they change their expansion rates, and et cetera. Just watch. Just wait. Wow. We'll see what happens. That's incredible. It'll be interesting to see what the ramifications are then. Yeah. So well, We don't know yet. We just have to wait. Now, this got me to thinking, Rob, how many science fiction stories depict inter-galaxy travel? Not too many situations like that, right? Usually, the space travel is all within one galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. Yeah, even, was that, was that Star Trek Voyager? Was that the one? Mm-hmm. When they get transported across the galaxy? Yeah, on a wormhole. Okay, yeah. And, well, they're still in the galaxy, yeah. But I don't remember how, I, I never got into that that series. It just was kind of dumb. Anyway. It's a curious thing, just given the size of the universe and how big science fiction makes the galaxy feel, which is a good thing to do because it is that big. And then we get some new knowledge like this laid on us. We really cannot fathom the depths of space to begin with. And then we're told it's just one-tenth of the, the scope that you thought it was. So that's a curious thing. Yeah, I'm still trying to, I'm trying to think, do I know any sci-fi that went between galaxies? I can't think of any offhand. I'm sure someone's done it. I just can't think of any, just because the, the scale. I mean, we can't even get to the closest star. We would die. The amount of space radiation out there is lethal. So... How do we even get there? You need to you need to hide yourself in something like the size of a of, of a giant asteroid, so you have you know thirty foot thick walls around you to prevent all the cosmic rays from incinerating you. But then, how do you accelerate that mass? Because that's a big old hunk of rock or metal that you're trying to fly through space, which means a lot of rocket engines. So I don't know that we're actually ever going to get human beings outside of the solar system. 
Mm. Physics is precluding it. And if that's a problem, how on earth would you ever get to the next God. galaxy? Yeah. Well, going back to our discussion about planets, extra what are they, extra solar system planets, we we don't have like examples of specific stars and star systems and planet bodies in other galaxies, right? Like all the things that we have charted are in the, the Milky Way. Is uh, yes. is that right? Okay. Yes, and nearby in the Milky Way also. Hmm. We don't have information about, you know, potential planets on a different arm or um on the other side of the galactic hub. Yeah. The only things that are pretty close to us. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Well, moving on, all a lot of our longtime listeners will be aware that now is that time of year that we are about to go and buy our pre-order our honeybees. Bees. Woohoo! About time, man. Yes. We've been saving up all of our change. We got a great big jar of change. We're ready to go to town and buy us the bee. But they're going to breed, you know, do they breed? No, they don't breed them. They just let the bees do their thing. And then you get your box of bees when the time comes. And they'll be ready for us in March. So we're talking about getting them both from the Cartersville bee farmer. Is that right? Bill's Bill's bees in Cartersville, Georgia. Great guy. Yeah. Yep. Looking forward to get, it. And tomorrow's the first day he's taking orders. So we're putting in our order on day one because I don't want to miss out. I don't want to get bees in June. Me neither. No. Yeah. You don't, you don't want the second the second group because there's no food. You want to get them out you know, right in March, right when the honey's starting to flow. This is, this is the time to do it. All right. Looking forward to this. We'll keep you posted as we get to the point when we finally have those bees. It's going to be my first time experience beekeeping. I'm really excited about this. Yep. And we had to open up the hives that we put out last year, check for wax beetles, check for mice, uh, make sure there's everything's up to snuff because when we put those animals in there, they're going to want a nice home and we want to give them the best home we can give them. Well, see, there, therein lies a little tale I was going to bring up to you. What's that? We opened up our hive, our uh, beehive box, yeah, and uh, we discovered that um, we have been visited by, by. insects that consumed all of our wax starters all of our they they are consumed they're gone the wax is gone um it could have been mice oh okay um, did they leave anything behind cocoons eggs i um, had one wasps nest in there nothing else really nothing major okay it could have been robbed out by 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 wasps or other bees but then you would have seen bees coming in and out the the hive during the daytime see mice would go up in there in the the nighttime but i would expect them to stay i I don't spend an awful lot of time looking that direction right well that's mystery just go order some new ones we will i opened up mine two weeks ago and it was fine so i'm in a better spot good and it's still on your front porch that's where you're going to dedicate it for now okay now i'm going to move it on the back porch i i got too many neighborhood kids coming over um, just visiting all the time and I can't have a beehive on my front porch. <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to the main topic. Yeah. You want to talk about the scientific advances that the world has seen in the last year. Because of COVID-19. Wow. Specifically. <laughs> so this follows up on last week's episode. Can we definitely say this is the silver lining of uh, COVID-19? Um, Yeah. Yeah, but some of what we learned, some of the scientific advances were actually um, misadventures in science. Because you learn from your mistakes, right? And (laughs) we learned a lot of mistakes and we learned a lot of things maybe we don't know as much as we thought we know. And that's good (laughs) Uh that you know what you don't know. This is a good thing, but it also means that maybe we can't do what we thought we might be able to do. Interesting. Those sorts of things. 
Yeah. So yeah, silver lining, a little bit of gray clouds behind it in some places. So when we say advances and innovations, I'm looking for the good news, Rob. Well, there will be. Like, we don't need any more bad news. No, every, everything will have some good news to it. But it'd be like, you know, if, if we were um, trying to build the world's tallest building and we found out that what we were doing was wrong and you can't do it that way. Well, that's still an advancement of science. Yeah, the good news then is that we don't build a building that's going to fall apart. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't do it that way. Next time you do it better, you're not going to waste all that money. You know, you have advanced your knowledge. It's just it was a very expensive lesson to learn. And some of the lessons we learned this year were kind of expensive. Hmm. No, I don't have any particular order. I just threw up a bunch of bullet points. Um, they We just talk talk about it as it goes and free-flowing conversation yeah. as we usually do. Yeah. But the coolest thing that happened, to my mind, for the advancement of science was an open approach to scientific learning. Now, this has been building for a long time. People wanting open data, data sharing, you know, not hiding behind paywalls and things like that. I'm expecting that all this sorts of stuff is going to be shut down in the future as competition builds up again, as secrecy builds up again. But as far as this COVID-19 and, and the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus are concerned, all, not all, not everything, but a fantastically massive amount of work was done in the open. People just putting their data out there before they even had written their papers. Wow. People discovering something and sharing it with someone else. And if you look at um, scientific publication, you can like draw a spider web of all the people who work together. And this is a really interesting statistical thing. People have done that. You know, this group of people tends to publish papers together. They've been doing it for 20 years. Right. They've never published it anybody else. All those barriers broke down this year. And the wow. collaboration, worldwide collaboration is up like a thousandfold. No joke. It is unbelievable how people have worked together around the world on ideas. Now, one of the problems with this is that something like 170,000 papers on a coronavirus have been submitted. Mm. And there hasn't been enough time to parse the papers for which ones are good and which ones are bad. Who can do that? There's just too many of them out there. Wow. And so there's a lot of bad science that is still unedited, floating around. A second cool thing that came out of this as a parallel are preprint servers. Now, this has been building for a while, bioarchive and, and things like that. These are places where a scientist can write a paper and put it out there before it's been accepted for publication. It does a couple of things. One, it gives him priority, him, him or her priority. I said, hey, my idea, it's right there. You already have a little document number, a DOI number that will travel with that document. Like, so maybe say, you know, nature best scientific journal in the world, picks up your paper and publishes it in Nature, it has the same number to it. There's a document identification number. Therefore, you still have priority because you published this document way back then, even if it's uh, published later in a journal. And the preprint servers, it, that is now the way to do it. Huh. A couple years ago, it was an idea. It was building steam very slowly. Yeah, you might do it, but you know, you're probably going to try to submit it to a journal first and if it doesn't go to your first or second choice, then maybe you throw it up on one of these preprint servers. But now, pretty much, that's the way to do it because it's no longer a stigma. It's no longer a um, journal uh, of science or nature or uh, you know, New England Journal of Medicine, any of these really big top-tier uh, journals. They're not looking down their noses at preprints. In fact, if I was going to start a journal, hint, hint for anyone listening, I would actually get onto BioArchive or something like that and write the authors and say, hey, would you like to publish in my journal and invite them? Yeah. And then you can literally start up your own journal. Boom. With, with things that have already been out there and people are already discussing. There's already commenting. They're already being vetted. So part of the peer review has already happened. 
part of it, not all of it. And some of the incredibly important parts have not happened in some uh, COVID-19 papers. Like the, actually this one that got published and I'm writing a, an article with, um, with John Sanford right now on, on our topic last week. Was this thing genetically engineered or not? Right. And one of the papers claims they found a coronavirus that has that insert that SARS-2 has. That's COVID-19 causing virus. There's an insert that allows one of our proteins to cut it in half. None of the other SARS-like viruses anywhere in the world have that except for the one that causes COVID-19 and a whole bunch of ones that they engineered in the laboratory. And these people are claiming we found one in the wild, but it's not true. And I can't believe this got published. I can't believe this even passed peer review. Their insert, if you look to the left and right, there's gaps in their alignment. They added spaces just to the left and to the right to take these four letters and shove them into the gap that was caused by the SARS-2 coronavirus that causes COVID-19. Because that sequence is actually longer than all the other sequences. Is. There's 12 extra letters or four amino acids. And so they faked it. They, they either made a mistake or they lied or whatever. And, yeah. and it's out there. And all these other people are citing it. See that? This is a natural virus that has the same thing that, that the coronavirus has. See that? It can happen all by itself. And it's simply not true. So the massive amount of work that has flooded the scientific halls on coronavirus is amazing and unprecedented. But it is also imperfect. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hmm. well. So, how has this have changed, if at all, with countries like China? Have they yeah. been more open much at all? Um, yes and no. They have. Um, there's been. There's a lot of international collaboration with China, much more so than people realize. And this has been true for more more than a decade. And this is a good thing. Yeah. And course. the whole reason why the the sequence of the coronavirus got published last January was because. Chinese researchers. They were actually collaborating with some Australians. And the Australians said, well, we have the sequence. Can we publish it? And the Chinese scientist said, well, I'm not sure. And he said, oh, let's just do it. And the Chinese scientist said, okay, which you probably shouldn't have because you have to get permission from your you know, communist superiors in order to do things like that in China. But he did it anyway. And therefore, within 19 days, we had a working coronavirus vaccine. Boom. Hmm. And so, yeah, they are collaborating, but there's a there's an awkwardness to it. And some of the things that they say they can't say, or some of the things they want to do, they can't do because they always have to check with the, the big man. Mm. But speaking of, of, of the rapidity of which the vaccine was developed, yeah. I'm going to talk about Operation Warp Speed. <laughs> Operation Warp Speed. Trump's brainchild to cut red tape, to get the government out of the way. And they, they said, okay, vaccine manufacturers, we need a vaccine. And they've, they put up a lot of money. But if it wasn't just money for developing vaccines, they also put up money for in- infrastructure development. So a company would be like, you know, we can develop a vaccine, but how do we make it? And they're like, well, here's some money. Go build a factory. And that's exactly what Pfizer did. And Moderna took money to develop their vaccine. And it's because of Uncle Sam that we have a whole bunch of different vaccines. And that's another cool thing. They didn't just say one company. They invested in multiple different companies with different strategies and different ideas. And they allowed them to pursue their science. And only, you know, four or five of them actually have made the cut out of the probably 50 under development. I know three of them that are definitely have been greenlighted in at least one country and more than one of them here in the U.S. But it's probably five of them that will make it through the whole process and they'll be available to the public. And it's because the government changed the way they deal with science. And it's really fascinating because 
in technology, everything's speeding up. The, the amount of knowledge that we're accumulating, it's accumulating faster and faster and faster. And we're able to take all that technological understanding and apply it to real world problems. And so computers are getting better and cars are getting better and airplanes are getting better. Yeah. And cell phones are getting better. Everything is getting better. and It's getting better faster. Well, that whole idea was right there waiting in the wings for medicine, but the government was in the way. Mm. And even though I'm sure the shackles are going to be put back on, they're going to they're going to slow everything down again because that's the way governments operate. Right now, get off my little high horse here. Didn't mean to get on that anti-government soapbox, but governments are not known for facilitating um, efficient change, shall we say? Right. <laughs> and yet, in this case, they saw it and they said, "Wow, we did this, and look what happened." Hopefully, it's a lesson learned, and hopefully, it'll, it'll be a lesson that they can learn for something else in the future. Just get out of the way and let people work and watch what happens. Mm. And what happened was an amazing array of new technologies. And it wasn't just a vaccine. It was, it was a PCR test that came out. That's a really cool idea. The PCR test. The, the standard, you know, stick the, the foot-long swab up your nose test. Right. Yeah, that's a PCR test, polymerase chain reaction. But they had that worked out. I mean, really soon after the viral sequence was available. They said, okay, we're going to target these three sections of this genome we're looking at on our computer screen. And here's the DNA sequences. So we have to manufacture these DNA sequences and we'll put those into a test kit and put those in a machine that's going to cycle a temperature up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. It's going to make copies of that DNA if it's present. If it's not present, you get a negative test. And that's the basis of the foot-long swab-up-your-nose test, and it works really well. Now, a lot, a lot of people are trying to say it's not accurate, but it really is. And we know that because in Australia, they basically know who has coronavirus right now. Mm. And it's only a few people, and almost all of them are people who came in from outside traveling mm. or someone they directly interacted with. And they've done like 10 million coronavirus tests that came back negative. So clearly, there aren't a lot of false negatives. And assuming that I make an assumption here, I'm assuming they're using a very similar protocol to that that we're using here in the States. Right. So our, our positives aren't false positives. You really do have the virus. It's not like you don't have the virus and the test just told me I did, haha, because it's reacting with some other part of my genome or, you know, E. coli or, or a cold virus. Or, no, it's a very specific test and you really do have that virus. Now, are you infectious or not is a second question. Right. You know. That's a whole different question. How long are you in the infectious cycle? They don't know either. You might have gotten it yesterday and just have a little bit of that virus, but it detected it. Or you might be over it and you still have some viruses, you know, kind of dead floating around in your, in your nose and they, they, they found that. Fine. But it's a really cool, fascinating test that works well. They also went and developed with unbelievable uh, rapidity some antibody tests, several different ones. And those are not nearly as accurate. That's an issue. In fact, I read an article in, um, I don't remember where I read it, probably, probably in, in science. They're rolling these out in the UK. These are called uh, rapid tests. And basically, they take some, I don't know, saliva or, or nose boogers, or I don't, I don't know what it is. They take <laughs> some biological sample, might be blood, and they put it on a slide, and it soaks through a piece of paper, and it goes across a zone where there are antibodies, and then another zone where there's a control. And it'll turn color, just, just like a pregnancy test. It'll turn color if there's antibodies present. Now, these tests don't work well if you're newly infected because you haven't developed antibodies yet, and they can easily miss. They're not very accurate, but they don't give false positives. They give false negatives. So you might have coronavirus, and it might tell you you don't. 
but they're cheap and they're fast. And even if they're only 50% effective, you got 50% of the time you tell someone, yes, you have coronavirus. That's a good thing. I wish I could be better. But see, again, we're pushing the limits of science here. That's one of the weird things that this this whole uh, coronavirus pandemic has told us is how limited science is. I mean, all, all these, these things that people are talking about, how infectious is a person? Nobody knows. What viral load does a person have to be shedding before they're infectious? Nobody knows. How many asymptomatic carriers are there? Nobody knows. And no one has ever known. Oh. Or how about, um, if I get the vaccine, can I still catch the virus? Well, the answer is, yeah. And people say, oh, that means vaccines don't work. No, that's always been true. When you get a measles vaccine, it doesn't mean you're 100% immune from measles. You can still catch the measles, but because your body has already seen the measles, it should get rid of that infection very quickly. You're not going to get sick with the measles, but that doesn't mean that you can't pass measles on to somebody else. Yeah, That's always been true, and it's only recently where people have realized it, because that's not really what you hear when you talk about vaccine advocacy. They're talking, you know, get this vaccine and, and you know, protect yourself. It's re- they are really saying protect yourself. But they also might say protect others too. And it's not necessarily true that you're protecting others. It does depend upon the disease. Because some, some of the vaccines, you're really not ever going to get this thing. It's never going to take on your body. And other ones are a little not quite as good at getting rid of it when it first starts. And it can actually grow a little bit before your body finally takes it over. So it does depend on the disease. But it's, it's like it's, this whole pandemic has opened our eyes to limitations, and that makes people very uncomfortable. Actually, I think it's fascinating, and I love when we learn these things, but other people are freaked out. Interesting, yeah. Well, I was just listening to someone who's up in his years, probably about 60, and he said that he is just recovered from COVID. And he, he said that he didn't know when he got it for sure, but it took a little bit over two weeks of various symptoms. For one week, he had a lot of nausea and his wife had different symptoms, but she was also tested and both had positive COVID virus. You know, So w- what is the rhyme and reason to the wide variety of different symptoms that people are experiencing? Any, any general explanation? Yeah, see, but see, that's another thing that people are now just realizing that any particular disease, not just the COVID-19, but any particular disease can produce a range of symptoms. And it's surprising. And so you might even have, like, I don't know that I've ever had chickenpox. I've never had chickenpox vaccine. I've never had the shingles vaccine. I don't think I've ever had chickenpox. My younger sister got it when she was in her 30s. Oh, so maybe I should go get the, the chickenpox pox vaccine. But all four of my kids had chickenpox. And I lived in the house with them and I didn't get chicken pox from them. And yet I look at all four of my kids. They all had different symptoms. One of them had a fever only. One of them had the pox only. One of them had the fever and the pox. And one of them, I don't even remember. That, that, that child like got like one little pox and was never feverish. And so maybe I had chicken pox and didn't know it. Or maybe I had a maternal dose of chicken pox antibodies. And so when I caught it, my antibodies were already present. I got such a light case that my body just started developing its own antibodies, I have no idea. But I never would have known that at least two of my kids had chicken pox if one of them didn't have real full-bore chicken pox. And that's true with the flu. That's true with coronavirus, definitely. 
and a lot of other things now. And it just makes medicine more difficult because, uh, just because, it, you know, if you, if you can't define a, a disease based on symptoms, how do you define the disease? Oh, well, with PCR tests. But then people say, oh, but no, I don't, I'm not sick. How do you know? It's just a false positive. I, there's no evidence I'm actually carrying the virus because they don't have any symptoms. Hmm. And so one of the coolest things that this whole coronavirus thing did is showed us the limits, what we can't know. And that's just cool. Just from a sociological perspective, fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Something else that this virus has showed us, even though we already knew it, but it has showed us very clearly how closely connected all the people in the world are. And when you think about this virus, it had to incubate basically in person zero, whoever that patient zero was. It incubated in that person and has spread now from person to person the same virus across the entire world and it has infected millions upon millions of people. And there's no sign that this thing is ever going to disappear from the human population. <laughs> Gross. Yeah. It'd be like walking into a laboratory and picking up a potion and randomly drinking a biological specimen. <laughs> you would never do that, but it's effectively what the world just did. Nasty. So we are very closely connected. There's something else cool. I mean, really, really amazing. Something yeah. <laughs> wonderful that the coronavirus taught us. And it taught us that people are gross. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because when we did all this social lockdowns, all the social distancing and the lockdowns and the masks and the, the washing of hands, the flu disappeared. There were 100 cases of influenza in the United States of America two weeks ago. This should be the height of the flu season. There were 100 confirmed cases. And I mean, confirmed as in, you go to the doctor with flu-like symptoms and he gives you a flu test and like 99% of all the flu tests come back negative. And says, oh, we well, probably got coronavirus. Gives you coronavirus test. Oh, boom. And you, you come up positive on a coronavirus test. So it's not, I mean, some of the conspiracy people are saying, oh, look at that. They're just shifting. They changed the definition of the flu. Now they call it COVID-19. See that? No, it's not true. There's actually testing going on and almost all the tests given in the United States for the flu came up empty. A hundred confirmed cases. That means that mask wearing does work. RSV virus is also down like 99%. Huh. Basically, every respiratory virus, I'm, I'm serious, every respiratory virus, the numbers have dropped precipitously. That tells us that social distancing is a worthwhile endeavor if you want to get rid of viruses i'm not saying if you're going to drive your economy into collapse or not but if you want to get rid of viruses like that that's how you do it and it worked now add coronavirus into that if we because we know this works on respiratory viruses if we hadn't done it the coronavirus covid19 would probably affecting like a hundred times more people than it is the reason why it spreads there's two reasons why it spreads one we are naive to this. Known in the world before two years ago had it ever caught this before. There's no antibodies in the human population for this virus. Something like RSV or one of the cold viruses or something, you've, you've probably seen them, them all. Now your body might forget or you might have some residual antibodies left over. So if you get exposed to it again, you probably won't get sick. You might get a day of and it'll go away or something like that. But because the population is not naive to these other viruses, it, it's hard for them to, to spread around. But they do spread until we did all the social distancing. 
But because we are completely naive to coronavirus, it has a much easier time of jumping over the barriers that we put in place. And the second reason it spreads is because it's incredibly infectious. I mean, it's a thousand times more infectious than SARS from 2003. And that killed like 800 people and the world was terrified, but it went away because it, it didn't infect people very well. It was easier to control. This one, I mean, it, it just gets away. It goes from person to person. You can't contain it. You can't put it in a lab. You can't keep it in a, in a, a hood with you know, negative air pressure and na na da 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 all that kind of stuff. It's too easy for it to escape because it's so infectious. And yet, if we didn't have all the social distancing, there's no telling how many people would have died from this. And, and another thing is the long COVID, this new syndrome that they, they're talking about, about 10% of symptomatic people can't get rid of the symptoms. That's a lot. Because something else this has done, all this study on this coronavirus thing, it has told us a lot of biological ramifications to getting sick with a virus that we didn't even realize. We're looking at, okay, the virus does this, it gets into this cell type, it flows down the bloodstream, or attacks your lungs, but not your liver, but your kidneys and not your spleen. That's really specific information, but we also know that it can get into the brain. And the Basically, the poisons it leaves behind, the proteinaceous material leaves behind in the brain, short circuits the, the, the nervous system. And so even though you don't have any virus anymore, you're not sick anymore. You, there's no infection in your body anymore. Some of the garbage left behind is messing up your brain. And that's affecting people's mood. I'm afraid uh, that the suicide rate's going to spike because of this. It's affecting people's behavior. It's affecting uh, their physiology, their heart rate, their, um, their respiratory rate, the, the, the functioning of their liver and their kidney and things like that. But it's only because it's in their mind, literally in their mind, and it's affecting them physiologically. So that raises a very interesting question about things like um, POTS and uh, lupus, chronic fatigue. People are now thinking, well, you know what? This might be the leftover of something like a cold or a flu virus. Because long COVID looks just like chronic fatigue in a lot of ways. A little different, but it's very similar. And so all of a sudden, we might have a solution to a perplexing problem that people have been talking about for maybe 30 years. And when they first started talking about people, no one believed the people. And now they're like, yeah, it's a real thing. We don't know what it's caused by, but now we might be figuring out what it's caused by. The one more thing that this whole coronavirus has done for us, it, it has allowed us to advance, maybe haltingly, but it's allowed us to advance in ways that are going to have a beneficial impact on humanity in the future. Hmm. Going back to something you were talking about, the effectiveness of masks, I'll be frustrated if it becomes commonly expected to wear a mask in general just anywhere you go beyond the pandemic. I think I understand that some cultures have gone this way yeah. and Eastern culture specifically. Yeah. I can't appreciate doing that. I, I would be sad to see the general public do that. I, I, I don't want to wear a mask outside of a pandemic. I've realized there's always health benefits. It always has been. It's not like this hasn't always been true. The benefit has always been there. And just now, because of the impetus of the pandemic, we are doing it. But think about it. If the pandemic subsided, uh, and logically speaking, if we wanted to help the whole world stay healthier, then we would wear masks from now on, always. Yep. Uh, I'm not comfortable with that conclusion, even though it's true. 
that's not how the world ought to tick. <laughs> True. However, this disease is going to affect world culture. It's going to affect how we interact with people. It's going to affect how we mingle with people. It's going to reduce social interactions. I mean, already, when I went, I mean, before this happened, when I went into a building, I would typically open the door with my foot, or if someone holds the door for me, I'll put my foot up, say thank you. And my, I don't never touch the door. I would already been doing that because I understand that surfaces like doorknobs are great places for cold and flu viruses to propagate from one person to another. Right. You know, I don't often open a door with my shoulder or whatever. No, I'm not being like, you know, paranoid or anything like that. I'm just applying the knowledge that I had. Well, now what about masks? I don't think I'm going to be wearing a mask, but you know, in, in China, if you, the reason people wear masks is because they're sick. It's expected if you are sick in any way, you will be wearing a mask to protect other people. It's not necessarily I'm wearing a mask to protect me from you. It's you wear a mask to protect me from you. That I understand. And, if, and, and there's not many reasons why I think someone with the flu needs to be out about town anyway. Yeah. But if you were, then please wear a mask. <laughs> yeah, but see, that, that, that's another thing that's going to be affected. In the future, from this day forward, if you're in an audience and sniffling or you have a little bit of a cough or whatever, people are going to look down their nose at you. It will be expected that if you are ill, you stay home in any way. You don't go to work when you're sick. Man, I can't tell you. I remember, um, I can't tell you. I remember one particular work trip I had. It was funny because we were going to all the water intakes for the city of Atlanta along the Chattahoochee River. We did it once a month and we had to go and sample different bottles. And some bottles were empty and some, one had acid in the bottom of it. One had some other chemical in it. And we had to fill these bottles up and bring them back to the lab for some analysis. And we had to take temperature of the water and look at the water quality, uh, the water clarity using a disc that we submerged into the water until we couldn't see it anymore. And all those measurements. And I think I had the flu. My back was killing me and I'm blowing my nose. And, mm, and yeah, but see, I don't, I don't know that I ever had ever had the flu before that. And I don't know that I ever had it after that for another 15 years before I said, this is called the flu. I finally admitted it to myself. And I just worked right through it. And a guy that I was driving around the suburban with all day long, exposing him to the flu, and I never felt guilty about it. I never even thought about it. And he probably never thought about it either. People are sick, and you, you're always dealing with sick people in, in your daily life. That is no longer going to be true. Yeah, back in our early 20s, which was... 15 years ago, not that young and foolish anymore, guys. But before I married my uh, then girlfriend, she was working with her best friend in a cleaning business. They were cleaning houses. And there was a summer when she caught strep and she was feeling miserable most of the time. But they were working really hard. They wanted to impress their boss and they were doing extremely well. They were getting the best clients and the best, all the best clients loved them. And so they were in high demand. They were killing it. They were making good money. And she told her friend, I think I've got strep. And her friend was like, no way. You know, no, you don't got strep. If you had strep, you couldn't do this job. Uh -huh. <laughs> and she had it for months and then goes to the doctor and then it's like, yep, you got strep, got what you needed to take. And her friend was blown away that she could do that. But I, I remember just three years ago, I had this cough I could not get rid of and a few other symptoms that you know kind of come with that, really gross. I was in the office almost every day. 
like uh, I only took a couple of sick days off at the beginning of it. Yep. Then I was around with that cough at the office for the next two and a half months. And it didn't matter what I took for it. It wouldn't go away. Yep. But there are some things that we can't, if you can't fix it, you still got to live. You still got to work. And there's some things like that that aren't heavily communicable. Yeah, but there will be a lot more forgiveness and flexibility, I, I should hope, for yeah. remote working and working from home. Yeah. And that, that, of course, that's changed America too in the world. Remote working. Wow. All of a sudden, we're going to see, and we're seeing it, big cities emptying out and all these Yankees moving here to Powder Springs. <laughs> <laughs> Go away. Yeah. I say as well, a former Yankee. <clears throat> <laughs> I was here first. <laughs> no, I was here first. I guess you Actually, were here I first, yes. I was from Virginia. I came here when I was four. <laughs> yeah, but your family's in Georgia for you know generations. I'm definitely that's right. in the carpetbagger class here. So Oh me. Wow. <laughs> well, that's a good place to wrap up. You wanna? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm that was my list of cool things that happened because of coronavirus. It's incredible. It is exciting. I think right now a lot of people are depressed and I get it. So we need to be aware of the silver linings and these are pretty interesting. So I hope that everyone has enjoyed us on this quest and that you got something out of this. If you found this episode interesting in any way, if you think that there's someone else who needs to hear this, consider sharing it with those friends and family members. And if you want to dig deeper into the topic, we are providing show notes with stuff that Rob discussed and the other side items we had at the beginning of the show. You can get those from our website. The web URL is nightowl.fm slash equinox slash 41. And the show notes are also with this episode if you subscribe to the show in an app on your phone. And remember that you should also check out Biblical Genetics, which is Rob's other project. Biblical Genetics is also available on a few other social networks. So you can find it on Facebook and MeWe and YouTube where you can watch the videos and join discussions on the comments. And if you want to find me, I'm at JCS Darnell on Twitter, or take a listen to my other podcast, Hi-Fi, which is available at nightowl.fm slash hi-fi. Until next time, goodbye, Rob. Goodbye, Joe. You have been listening to Equinox. Yes, I love that. It was much more conversational even to hear you bat around all the points. Yeah, yeah. So that was good. I am building an indoor studio for myself. Mm, mm. Um, I, I have to. So glad to hear this. The, the amount of editing that goes on for an outdoor shot and the amount of sound, it's just, it, it's killing me. Yeah, like the lighting's okay and the depth is okay, but the sound is terrible and the lighting can be a mess. Yeah, and and rain and you know planes flying over and people walking by and it's just driving me bonkers. And so I need to simplify this process. And plus, I need to just be able to walk in the bedroom, turn the camera on, talk, and be done. Yeah, not have to yeah. drive for forty five minutes and find a place where I want to be. And you know, it's it's kind of fun as a filmmaker, but it's just too much work. Ugh. But then again, I just watched this guy 
and he's doing his coral reef. Uh, he's basically he's a coral grower, and he's always dressed very, very you know impe- impe- um, impeccably. He's got a, a vest on, maybe a suit or something really nice, and he's just in front of a white wall, and maybe the white wall has a piece of molding on it or something, you know, horizontally, and and it's just a soft white light in the background, and it looks fantastic. It's like how did he pull that off? And yet everyone else that I'm watching, they've all got you know knickknacks in the background on shelves and things like that. Well, I don't own any shelves, and I don't want to buy them. And so I got on, I don't know, HomeDepot.com and Walmart.com, look at shelves. I said, oh, yeah, I can do that. So I went downstairs, and sure enough, ran some oak through the, through the machine, and boom, 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 boom. And I'm going to build myself these, the kind of shelves that they, the shelves get smaller as you go up, and it leans against the wall. It looks like it's leaning against the wall. Yeah. It's really a triangle. I have a back, a back leg to it. I didn't want a total leaning. Oh, cool. And they're each going to be, I think, three feet wide, and they're going to sit. Remember the thing when we did the, the desk I had behind me? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want my camera to be so close to my nose, so I had to back it up, but that means I'm looking at half of my wall, and the wall's like not painted well. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm going to put to the left and right of that desk these shelves that go up smaller and smaller for cool things on those shelves and that'll fill up my field of view. And all of a sudden I will be that much closer to having a good looking studio setup. That is amazing. I am super excited to hear this. Me too. But what's killing me is lighting. Uh huh. It is absolutely killing me. I made a mistake in buying what I bought. I bought four LED, small LED things, mm-hmm. and they're just not powerful enough. Oh, okay. And so I have to get them really close. But by getting them close, that makes bright spots and dark spots. They're just not sufficient. I need one of those big, you know, put the light bulb inside the big glowing box thing for diffuse light. Yes. Yes. And so, those are so killer. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I keep getting harsh shadows. And um, two of the lights I got were on tripods, but the tripods aren't tall enough. So I set the tripod up on the bed or up on the desk, <laughs> so it get it, you know, a couple feet up, and even then, it's it's not high enough to kill the shadows on the bookshelf behind me. The light has to be coming down, <laughs> not sideways at it. Yeah. And arg, I'm I'm gonna run with what I have, and it sounds okay. That the room is is live. I hear an echo, and it's a high pitched echo, and yet I was listening to a guy. And he, you know, 100,000 views on his video and his is like super echoey. And I was like, this sounds terrible, but he got all these views. So maybe I shouldn't be so persnickety because my echo was not nearly as bad as his. I mean, not even close. I do hear a lot of forgiveness for the echo. Yeah. In fact, I didn't even notice it on the recording. I noticed it sitting in the room saying echo and listening to it. Yeah. Oh, that sounds yeah, yeah. terrible. On the recording, I didn't notice it at all. I've been surprised to find the same thing. Like they'll even invest in these pretty decent microphones and yet those microphones can't help but get the echo. So then they just accept it. And that's what they, they go with. And they've got millions of followers and that's just what they do. Yeah. Well, you're not doing the wrong thing. Um, if you did happen to find a good softbox that you wanted to get and you want to split, I buy half of it, you buy half of it, and we could share it. <laughs> I'd entertain that idea. Because Reese wants to do some videos and uh, she wants to make craft videos for YouTube. Hmm. And Amber is entertaining the idea of doing some videos about sewing. Oh, oh how about smocking? Smocking? What's a smock, smocker do? Um, you've seen dresses where the, um, there'd be a square on the front of it with very tiny pleats, very closely spaced, very tiny pleats, and they're, they're, they're embroidered. Oh, yeah. She's shown me this. Like She's done some of these for children's clothes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's a interesting. It's a thing you turn a crank and the, the cloth goes through there 
and there's 20 needles. And the, the thing that's turning, that the, the spool that's turning has slots, one slot for each needle, and it crumples up the fabric and the needle goes through the fabric, you know, 20 different needles pulling thread through the fabric. And so when it comes off, it's all crunched up accordion-like in these little teeny pleats. And then you, you embroider it afterwards. Hmm, interesting. I just found a website where they had some examples. And I don't think I've seen this one before. I'm going to share it with Amber. And so I, um, for some reason, I just started thinking about corals again. Very dangerous because I used to be, a, well, I used to be a coral farmer. The siren song of the corals. Yes. And I'm watching all these videos and I'm, I'm, ha- I'm waking up in the morning with ideas. I'm sitting in the shower going, oh, that's a great idea. And so I just got to try it. So I put it on Facebook. I said, has anyone got an old, I don't care what condition, uh, fish tank sitting in the garage that I don't care about anymore? And one of my old friends from Darlington said, hey, Rob, I got a 55 gallon. You want it? I said, yeah. So Saturday I'm getting a... A fish tank. Sweet. Stupid. Awesome. <laughs> All these years, I have deliberately avoided having an aquarium because I knew it had the potential to take over my life. <laughs> sure. Well, how do you start it? Do you get a coral from a friend or do you get one at a store? Uh, from a friend. I'm, I don't have any friends that I know are doing it. I'm going to go to the the uh, shop in Dallas. Oh, okay. Now, his stuff isn't great. It doesn't have many corals, but I don't care. It'll do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But see, I just want to start up a conversation. Because I want to grow these things. Yeah, that's amazing. And I know I can. I know I can do a great job. And I even know if I could, I know what I would target. That species, that type of coral right there. Wow. And I can do a great job on it. Huh. Yeah. Anyway. Interesting. Just the the quarantine has made me go places creatively like, I need to go and do a YouTube channel. And I know exactly what I would do. And I've created... Yeah, like a spreadsheet and I've written down like all the ideas for the first 40 videos. Wow. Said, yeah, I know exactly what I would do with all this content, but I realize I have too many topics. Uh, I have too much diversity. Yeah. I would need to narrow it down. Yeah. So anyway, I, I'm still batting around ideas. Like one of my favorite ideas is just helping my daughter out because she wants to do her own crafting videos mm-hmm. and she's actually really good. I wouldn't say she's like the best prodigy 12 year old artist I've ever seen, but she's very good, and I think she could go places if we continue to to help her out, fund her. Cool. I can say, hey, Dad can take care of the camera work. Reese, you just do your thing, and cool. I'll re- make sure it's recorded and edited. I want to do that for Haven. I want her to be Space Girl or the Space Generation. Yeah. I want her stick to be, thank you adults for inventing space travel. That's my generation. We're going. Mm-hmm. And here's all the things I need to know as an 11-year-old to go to space and to live in space and to stay in space. I'm going to interview all these people and I'm going to, man, she would do great at it. I don't know any other 11 year old doing something like that. I'm sure there is. That is exactly the type of platform that she could do to get notoriety, maybe get some income, get invited to NASA. Who knows what might happen? I remember when I was their age and dad would listen to talk shows on the radio while (laughs) we were out around town and kill to me. me rush limbaugh and kill me it was, it was like what is dad's fascination with this uh, i'm gonna yeah. pay attention just long enough to figure it out because i had nothing else to do in the yeah, band that was back when i was still listening to the top 20 <laughs> yeah <laughs> I right i don't listen to any top 20 anything but back then it was like oh <laughs> who's number three woohoo gonna yeah, this is so down cool. to electric avenue and then we'll take yeah. it higher that never hit number one i was so disappointed <laughs> Electric Avenue didn't hit number one. It was my favorite song. Anyway, whatever. Wow. 